All right, so we're picking up in Galatians. We're going to read through chapter 4 today. So review. I'll do a review, and then Roy's going to lead us in a prayer in a couple minutes. The, boy, I don't even know. It's really hard to review what we talked about last time because there's so many ways you could go. I think, I think if there's one thing we can talk about. So last week we talked about the new law, comparing and contrasting the new law with the old law. And I think if there's one thing I would point out, I would say that a key point is that what Jesus wants you to do is he wants you to go deeper. Right? It's not just the letter of the law. He wants you to know the spirit of the law that was under that the whole time. Where he doesn't want you to just do the right things. He wants you to be the right type of person. Because when you can be that right type of person, these other things, they will solve themselves. And remember, Paul talks about how the law was meant for unrighteous people, rebellious people. I mean, Moses says the same thing. But if you look in the New Testament, it's talking to people that he can trust. People who want to have a relationship with him. And that's why it sounds a little different when you read it in the New Testament. And I say that it goes deeper because if you understand the core of what these things mean and you do those things, you'll do what the law was always intended to do. That's what Paul says in Galatians, but we're going to get to that later. And so if you understand the core of it, it means don't just not murder people. Learn to cherish them. Because when you cherish them, that will solve hate and that will solve murder and it's going to solve a whole bunch of other problems. And you don't need to be told just to not murder because you're going to be doing the positive side of that. Or another one would be lust, where sometimes people get caught in this trap. They're dealing with lust problems, and so they're going to try to deal with it solely through willpower. And willpower is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. You have to fill that void with the positive aspect. And it means don't just look at their bodies and then control what, what's happening there. Instead, you have to realize that women are more than the bodies that they have, but for the souls that they are. And when you can see that, that's when you really get what the law was always talking about. And so I think that's one of the keys. The one thing that Leanne brought this up, and I had forgotten to comment on it. She pointed out that Jesus asks more questions than he answered. She's right about that. Okay, Jesus answered 183 questions, but he asked 307. And the reason that's important is that, and what Leanne was bringing this up for, is that he's trying to get you to think about it. Like, get below this level. Think about this more. Because when you think about it, there's, there's an underlying principle here that was always there. It was always there, boy, back in the Torah. But now there's a focus on it. So I think it's a, that's a good point to bring up. And I have to apologize to Logan. I, I found out, somebody told me Logan had his hand raised for like 15 minutes straight. So it must have been a really good comment. So I don't know, but you know, it's like soul-crushingly good comment that was life-changing. But you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't ask him, so it's just gone now. But unless he wants to bring it up, I don't even know where he is. Yeah, this, so now I'm watching for your hand, buddy. I'm watching for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will say this. Sometimes people will do this thing. I love it when you do this. So please do this. When somebody sees somebody else that I haven't called on and does it where you raise your hand and you do like this and you point, I totally know what you're talking about. I know not to call on you. I know to look for wherever you're pointing. Please do that. That's really helpful. You'd be surprised. I feel like I'm like 100 feet from people. Or so are the people in the back, which I don't... That's actually, maybe that's not that far off. I don't know. But yeah, it's hard to see hands in this sea of people. All right. So that's all I had for the review. And let's go ahead and do the prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. And thank you for the blessing of life. And we thank you for our Savior, the most important thing in the universe. We pray you be with us tonight and we'll listen attentive to your word so that we can strive to know you better and live the life that you designed us for. We thank you so much for all you've done for us. We ask you to be with those of our number who are sick and ailing, and pray you'll be with them, heal them, and raise them up. 
We thank you so much for all you've done for us. Amen. There was a family that had adopted a little girl, a little eight-year-old girl. And one of the things was that she had been adopted by a prior family before. And that family had dissolved the adoption. So this was the second time she had been adopted. And they had found out that the prior family would go to Disney World. And they would take their natural-born children, but they would leave her behind with a family friend. And so she had seen all the pictures, she heard about all the rides, she understood everything about Disney World, but she had never experienced it for herself. And so when this family found out about that, the father said, that's it, we're all going to Disney World. But her behavior got continually worse after that. He said that her behavior was downright devilish. It didn't even make any sense. Like, she would lie and she'd steal food when she could have just asked for it. She would lie when telling the truth was easier to do. And she would do, it seemed like the worst possible thing to hurt her siblings. And he's like, I don't know what's going on here. And one time, he, sudden, he was getting after some of her behavior and suddenly became clear. He was getting after her and suddenly she said, I know what you're going to do. You're going to leave me behind. You're going to go to Disney World without me. They always leave me behind. And he said, I'll confess. He said, my first thought was, was to use the trip as leverage. He said, but I decided not to. And so he looked at her and he said, is this family going to Disney World? She nodded. He said, are you part of this family? And she nodded again. He said, as long as you're part of this family, we're all going to Disney World. You're not being going to be left behind. Now, you might think, he said, that maybe her behavior would suddenly improve. He said it didn't. At least not that. Until they got to Disney World. And after a, few, a couple days in Disney World, he said it was like she became a new little girl. And he said... In our hotel room one evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, how was your first day at Disney World? And so he describes her sitting here clutching her little stuffed unicorn. And she said, she looked at him and she said, I realized that I got to go to Disney World not because I was so good, but because I'm yours. Now we're going to read Galatians chapter 4. Focus in on the way that Paul uses relational terminology. He uses it throughout the thing. Look for this contrast of son versus slave. Because when you see this, it's really kind of like this story with this little girl, right? It's, it's about ownership in a certain sense, but in a relationship. And when you understand that, you're going to understand... Why Paul sees this as an answer both to people who want to go back to a sort of checklisty, law-based understanding of their relationship, it answers that question. It also answers how you avoid going to a type sort of relationship where you think that you can just do whatever you want, lasciviousness, or a kind of incorrect version of freedom. So let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read chapter four. It's a bit difficult here because we're starting in mid-thought, but we've already read the rest of this. Chapter four, verse one. Now I mean that, that the heir, as long as he is a minor, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. So also we, when we were minors, were enslaved under the basic forces of the world. But when the appropriate time came, had come, God sent out a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, who calls Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that were by nature not gods at all. But now that you have come to know God, or rather are known by God, or to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless basic forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing religious days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that my work for you may have been in vain. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me because I have become like you. You have done me no wrong. But you know it was because of a physical illness that I first proclaimed the gospel to you. And through my physical condition you were put to the test. But you did not despise or reject me. Instead you welcomed me as though I were an angel of God, as though I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your happiness now? For I testified about you that if it were possible, you would have pulled out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They court you eagerly, but for no good purpose. They want to exclude you so that you would seek them eagerly. However, it is good to be sought eagerly for a good purpose at all times, and not only when I'm present with you. My children, I am undergoing birth pains until Christ is formed in you. I wish that I could be with you now and change my tone of voice because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not understand the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. But one, the son by the slave woman, was born by natural descent, while the other, the son of the free woman, was born through the promise. These things may be treated as an allegory, for these women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren woman who does not bear children. Break forth and shout, you who have no birth pains, because the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. But you, brothers and sisters, are children of the promise like Isaac. But just as at that time the one born by natural descent persecuted the one boarding according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Spirit say? Throw out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free one. Okay, so what kind of things did you notice, things that stood out, or what kind of questions did you have? Yes, ma'am. I can just imagine how the Jews would have reacted to hearing that the covenant from Mount Sinai represents slavery. Yeah, I think this would have a a big shock factor. Just imagine being a Jew, and he says this, and you said Mount Sinai is a form of slavery. Yeah, this would have landed hard. (laughs) I think there's no doubt about that. Yes, sir.
Yeah, I like the way the Bible. Yeah, he goes back to Abraham. Abraham, it's like this idea is not a new idea. It's a really old idea. So he brings it all the way back. He's talked about Abraham a lot in chapter 3. It turns out he's still talking about him in chapter 4. Yeah, order of operations. That's a good way to put it. Yes, John. Yes, it's kind of like that same old story, right? You guys wanted a king, and you wanted a king for all the wrong reasons, where this is the problem. This was the ancient story all over again. It seems like these are people wanting to go backwards all over again. Yeah, that's true. That's the same old story. What about the... Let's talk about the relational aspect, okay? So... Uh, let's look at chapter 4, verse 6. We talked about this slightly last week. And he says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, who calls Abba Father. What do you think about that? What do you think that means? Why might that be significant? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay, so we have to talk about spirit, and then we have it, the Abba Father part, right? And it does feel like this is an important part of the passage. So it's like one of those things we can just kind of skip past because it can be a little confusing, but it turns out it's rather important. Right. It's much more personal. It's like a family. It's not like this being that you just obey. It's personal. Yeah, it does. This, this feels very personal, right? This is relational, and it fits the whole chapter. That's what he's talking about. Yes, John. Yeah, see, I, exactly. It goes back to Jeremiah. We talked about Jeremiah last time, actually. Jill brought Jeremiah up. And it was like God always wanted this sort of relationship. Right? This is, again, it's not a new idea. It was always there. That was kind of the problem. People didn't feel like they had a relationship with it. Think about how David and Saul were different. Where David would talk about, Saul, about God in this very personal perspective. It's my God. It's my rock. It's my foundation. And Paul, or Paul, Saul, although Paul actually gets his name from Saul, but... Yeah, that's different. Saul the king didn't had this kind of almost functional view of God. There was this kind of indirection in the middle. Didn't have that softness that David had with him. Yes, Roy. It makes me think of that saying: "Rules without relationship equals rebellion." <laughs> okay, I've not heard that before. Rules about relationships equals rebellion. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. We, we just did the parenting class, and we talked a lot about how, how that works and how you, you have little kids, which, you know, they don't really understand at one year old what really what a relationship means. So you kind of have to have rules at the beginning. But, you know, if you just try that same tactic with a 16-year-old, it's not going to work right, right? You've got to move beyond that into having more of a relationship with them. Because, the, yeah, it, it will turn into rebellion. That's a good point. Yes, ma'am. Children, young children cannot be heirs to the 
Yes, I do think he's, he's okay, because you're right, because he talks about there's, there's kids, but he talks about both young and old, and he talks about slavery and free, right? And I think what he's saying is when they're a little kid, they're treated kind of like a slave. They don't seem to have any rights, although if they're an heir, though it hasn't come to fruition, at the same time, they are to be the heir. So even though at that time they're treated like a slave, but they're really the heir of everything in a certain sense until it comes to what you said, maturity, right? Which is exactly what Paul's saying about the Jews. They should have seen this was just one step. It wasn't the end result. The law was one step towards something bigger. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. It would be like you have a kid who's supposed to be going to college and he's still drinking milk. It's like, it's, it's time to grow up, buddy, right? You see these cases where somebody's like, okay, you know, son, you're 45. It's time to move out of the basement now, right? <laughs> it's time to move on. You were made for something bigger than this. Uh, yes, sir, I think I saw your hand raised. Yeah, exactly. It's this change in relationship is really rather significant. And like you said, the, Ro- the Romans reference using the same phrase, Abba, Father. I mean, this is this very close relationship that you can have with God. It's how Jesus talked to his Father, right? And that's where we get to have something like that. Yes, sir. This is, a, this is a, a really good point. When you read these things in context, it's funny how they start to shift a bit here. So if you want to go back to this sort of law way to be saved without the relationship, it's actually taking a step back, kind of like going back to the flesh. I mean, this is the context here. When you have God's spirit, you want to move away from those fleshly things and you have a relationship. That's the point. They're connected to each other, which is why when you read chapters one and two about how people want to go back to this kind of law-based approach, and then in chapters five and six, Paul's going to talk about people who want to go to the lascivious approach. The answer is the same for both of those problems, right? When you go to somebody who's like, why well, I just I had this checklisty mentality and they're struggling with it, what you have to do is say, you're a child of God. Think like it and live like it. And when the person says, yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm saved, I'm a child of God, so I'm going to go out and do whatever I want. You're, you're a child of God. Think like it and live like it. It's the same answer to two different questions. Yeah. About that little girl and, and compare that. She 
by acting out and choosing sin, uh, she was living by the flesh, right? But also, she didn't have to live perfectly and obey perfectly in order to be a child. She was a child no matter what. Just like, a, but a slave, if you don't act properly and you're a slave, then you're cut off. And you're like, a slave I can get rid of. If they don't obey, I get rid of him, right? Whereas a, a child, a child, even, even the, the prodigal son's father was waiting for him because even when he was far off, he was still loved by the father. And he was waiting, he was earnestly waiting for the son to return. So um, as a slave, Go into sin. You might be cut off. You've got to do everything just right if you want to stay a slave. But a son is a son. Right. It's a long-term relationship. Right? You don't just cut people off. That's not how you treat. If it's a, just a higher lane, it's just a higher lane. They come in, they do a job, they move out. The relationship is totally functional. Which is, to, to your point, it was like, that's what that little girl felt like. She didn't feel like she was part of a family. And as soon as she realized she's part of a family, I'm a child, that's when the relationship started to shift. Yes, sir. One last thing. Romans 8. Right, there is no condemnation in Jesus. You've ever known people, you've ever been one of those people, who thought that your relationship with God was more like that slave, where it's like, if I mess up, I'm out. And, and you know, you feel like there's this barrier between you and God. Now, it's a barrier you have created. It's not how God looks at it, I'm convinced, but it's a barrier that people create. And I know what that feels like because I've, I've lived that life. And actually, Galatians was one of the things that woke me up out of it. I started to realize, like, I don't know what this means. Like, I don't really know what this means. Boy, this is a, this is a big verse. What does this mean? And start putting it all together. As soon as I shifted my mentality past that and started thinking like a child, two things happened. One, a whole lot of passages made a lot more sense. And two, it turns out that when you realize that you have an identity in Christ, that really, you really understand what that means, and you're a child of God, it turns out it's easier to deal with, with the sins of the flesh. It's actually easier. Like sometimes I think people fall into this law-based idea because they think that it's more effective. It's not. It's not more effective. It's less effective. Yes, sir. I don't think we've talked about it much, so go for it. Yeah, I, okay, so catch this. But you, I, I think you're totally right. The, when Paul talks about, like, it's, it's like I'm going through birth for you again. I mean, this is, this is a pretty strong language. Paul, Paul talks about his relationship with the, with the Galatians, too. That's all part of this. And I, I like the way he put it. He said, it's like we have to kind of remind ourselves to stay delivered in a certain sense. And I think that's true. And it's odd because sometimes 
what turns it starts as a good thing is kind of what undermines us. I can't remember who put it, but somebody said something about how we kind of do the same thing that some of the Galatians do, where we start by knowing that we're saved because God has done something for us, and then we start trying to clean up our lives because we want to have a relationship with God. I'm assuming here somebody's acting faithfully. And then you start realizing, man, I got a lot of stuff to clean up. Like as soon as you start realizing it's not just about meeting some checklist, but really trying to be like God, you're like, this is actually really hard. And then you start to feel that, that force, that, you know, that burden start to come on your back again. It's like, well, but why were you saved? You were saved because God did something for you. Okay, you got in without being perfect. Why do you think you stay in now that you, because you're perfect? That doesn't, that's not even how you got in, right? Yeah, good point. Yes, sir. Completely agree. Okay, so this is why we're using preachers and teachers, and you expanded it really to have this whole group. Like, how could you survive without it? It's like a family. He's, the whole thing is about a family, right? The whole thing from even your relationship with God. And I've never understood why people. I hear people say, and I don't think they've really thought about it. They'll say, "I'm against like organized religion." Well, does that mean you're for disorganized religion? Like, what does that mean exactly? And I want to reword it because I, I think what you're actually saying when you say that is you don't want to be a part of a family that loves your father the way you're supposed to love. Like, when you say it like that, this, this whole thing of being part of a congregation sounds like a good thing, and that's because it is. I also like that you pointed out something. Says it's not about hitting the mile markers. And this is true, too, because you have to be careful when you compare yourself to other people, other Christians, that is, because it's not a race. You said that, too. Some people are going to develop faster in some ways than you are, and you're going to develop faster than them in other ways. The whole idea of spiritual gifts is that not everybody has the same gifts. And it's not just true of, you know, we think of spiritual gifts, we think of prophecy and stuff like that. But there's a whole set of gifts that we all have. And the point is, when we're part of a group, we make up for some of our lacks because of the other people we have. So you don't have to sit there and compare and be like, well, you know, I should be here and I'm not here because Raymond is and I'm not. You know, it's, I'd tell you not to compare. But here's the thing. People always compare anyway. So if you're, at least if you're going to compare, compare right, knowing that you don't have to meet every attribute. Right? You just just don't compare this. <laughs> it's a better way to do it. Yes, sir. I don't have a specific verse that I'm commenting on here, but I'm just thinking in my mind. I became a Christian when I was about 25, and I learned a lot in that process. And thinking back to when I was a child, when my father told me to do something, i.e. law, I did it out of fear of what he would do to me if I didn't do it when I got home. But then as I grew older and I saw how hard my father worked and what he was doing as the head of the family to lead it and take care of us, I started obeying it more out of love and respect in that relationship. And then when I became a Christian, it was kind of the same deal. When I first became a Christian, it was out of fear of God, pure of God. You know, you think about Cora's family, the ground opened it up and then screaming and it's closing back. You know, that put some fear in me. But as I room to know God for the Father, the loving Father that He is. You know, 
John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. So we, we start to, again, go back to the family. Now we, we're part of the family. God's our Father. We want to do things, those things that are pleasing to Him. Not, not fearful of the rules or the law. You're more in, in, in tune with what God wants from us. And like you said, when you're living that life, trying to do His will, then the, the law part of it falls into place. Yeah, and I like this because you're, like, if you, there's a reason Paul talk, uses the word father, right? Because he wants you to see, he's presuming a good father. Because I think we've all had that where we did what our parents told us to do, just like you said, out of fear of getting punished. And then I think but you, you see your, what your dad did and how much he gave up for you. I mean, like, literal dad. And then you just do things because you want to do it for them. And then what happens is you don't do just what you have to do. You do more than that. You have real appreciation. And I think if we all look back, almost all of us would say that our spiritual life started with fear. And you know what? There's a place for that. The beginning of fear, or beginning of wisdom is fear. It, it's, you know, if you think, I started with fear and now I've got love, so maybe I wasn't really converted. No, I think that, that's pretty normal. But you've got to go beyond that, right? You've got to develop that thing where I, I want to do these things because I know more and more how much God has done for me. And I want to do it. Yes, sir. One thing I've often wondered is why God's relationship with Israel changed so much, specifically for the Old Testament. So it goes from God walking in the garden to speaking directly to Abraham, speaking through a conduit, and then at the end of the Old Testament, having several hundred years of absolutely nothing. At least that Yeah, oh yeah, this is like the, one of the big meta questions. Like, why did it seem to deteriorate, God's relationship with his people? I mean, it starts off with Adam and Eve, this very close relationship, and then it just, it just seems to get worse. And I think probably, and this is probably too simplistic of an answer because that's a very big question. I think the simple answer to that, it was because they started just breaking the big laws. Actually, hold on, I got a G.K. Chesterton quote for you. He said, when you break the big laws, you don't get liberty, you don't even get anarchy, you get the small laws. And if you look at, go back and read the Torah and realize that what God didn't do, he didn't do this. Here's all the rules in a single shot. Here they are. The rules actually developed. I mean, there are times when, say, God has to go to them and says, you know, if you come into the temple to offer sacrifices, don't show up drunk. You're thinking, really? Like, you have to be told this? What's going on here? A new rule got added. Right? They were breaking the big laws, and so what happened? He said, there's only one way to fix this. Is I just got to keep giving you more rules to get to, you kind of get you to do what I need you to do for this time. Not really what God had wanted long term, but it had to be necessary. Think of it as if you've got a rebellious child, you may have to put more rules on them because they're rebellious. And then once they 
their hearts start to change, you can remove some of the rules. And the New Testament is focused on people who are trustworthy. That's why Jesus keeps making a point about faith and trust over and over and over again. That would be the simplest answer. You know what Jesus said about divorce. About this was the rule because you need this rule at that time, right? I would prefer for us to have a different rule about that. Oh yeah, the, I, okay, this is a good point. His, Jesus' ruling on divorce fits this, right? It was allowed because of the hardness of your heart. But God never really wanted it to be like that. And he actually, he appeals to a, a universal principle, a principle that goes all the way back to creation. And says, if you want to understand that, then you would understand this. And you know, if you think like that, it actually starts to solve a lot of problems. Try to make an argument against polygamy via the New Testament. It's hard to find a specific verse that just says it's wrong. But you have to do what Jesus did. Right? Jesus says, appeal to this universal principle that goes all the way back to this, the state when man was right, when everything was good. Go back and look at that, and then you can answer it. And actually, I think you can make a better argument against polygamy than that, with that argument, than even actually divorce. And Jesus clearly thinks you can make an argument against divorce for that. Yeah, I agree. That, that's, exactly, that's exactly the difference. Because you know what? You can never give enough rules to somebody who has a rebellious heart. That will never make them the right type of person. I'm going to give you another quote. C.S. Lewis. He said, He is going, he, meaning God, is going to make us into creatures that can obey his command. That's the key. That goes back to Jeremiah, where it's like they're going to have circumcised hearts. They're going to be a new type of people who have the law written on their hearts, not just written on stone. I have lots of governmental applications of what you just said. (laughs) We're not going to get into constitutional law? Yes, ma'am. So the wording of verse 9 makes me pause and really think. Um, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how will you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And initially, I think to be known by God, hasn't he always known every person, all his people? But when you think of it as having your identity Okay, that's true, because it's like, okay, if you look at verse 9, it says, now that you have come to know God, and a lot of times it's put in parentheses, almost as if, well, almost more accurately, Paul's saying, or rather, to be known by God. It's like, yeah, well, God knows everybody. He knows exactly what the number of hairs in everybody's head. So what does that mean? Well, obviously it means something deeper than that. And you have your identity in Christ. You know not just that God exists, you know what kind of God we're talking about. This isn't just a, the result of an apologetic argument about how the universe got created. It's deeper than that. And he knows you. I mean, think about that, how strong of a verse that is. It's one thing to, for you to know about God, but something for God to know you. And that's what we're talking about, something much, much deeper. Yes, sir. That's very powerful, too, if you're talking to anybody in the Muslim range of religion, because they, have a, they don't really have a personal relationship with God. God is some being that's mentioned, but they don't have a personal relationship with him to the point where they have a hard time even comprehending that, where we as Christians do. And if you're talking to someone like that, and you can convey to them what it means to know God and for him to know you and have a personal relationship with him. You know, he talks to us through his word, we talk to him through prayer, and that's, that's how we maintain our relationship. 
Yeah, this is, this is true. Like, Islam is very different in that, this aspect, right? Very, very different. In fact, the number one sin you can commit in Islam is shirk, which is to confuse God with something considered earthly. And they consider that, saying that God came down and had a body, they consider shirk. Okay, but that was God coming to us to live with us. That's part of this whole closeness, which they reject. And it's really, it's, it's Islam. It's really pretty much every other earthly religion really doesn't have this thing that we talk about, of having a relationship with God. It's very different. I've heard people say, and I suppose there's technically, technically some inaccuracy in this, but people say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, technical Luke would say, technically, according to the definition, it is a religion, okay, whatever. But I, I think their point is actually on balance, right, when you get to that second point. It's a relationship. This is precisely what these other ones don't offer. You ask people, Ask people what they think the gospel is, who aren't Christians. And it is amazing, because they always tell you, they tell you the exact opposite of the gospel. They'll tell you something like, well, be good enough, go to heaven. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> That's not it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, and, I mean, people are shocked when you tell them that, no, it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than, and way weirder, because they just assume what everybody would assume. Salvation by doing enough, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, th- exactly. This is another one that's a, a very weird, what looks totally backwards, but it turns out it's the most right word thing we've ever had, which is that you are made alive, therefore you live according to this, as opposed to you, you live according to these things and therefore are made alive. It's backwards. And yet it's exactly how relationships work, right? We know how this works. Yeah, I totally agree. It seems so backwards. And you go back even to Melchizedek. Remember that Abraham, he offered a tithe because he was blessed. He didn't offer tithe to be blessed. Right? Again, the order is backwards, but actually this is a point. It is older than the, the gospel, the time that Jesus came, because the gospel was always there. Raymond? totally agree. This sounds shocking to say that you could take what God has told you and make it into a superstition. Of course, it's not really superstitious, but that's how sometimes we treat it. If you treat God as, as a like heavenly machine where you just put coins in and you get a spiritual treat out of it, you've totally missed it. But that's how some people treat it. Like, yeah, treat him like a calendar, right? That's, okay, you may put on your calendar that you're... Your anniversary is today. My happens to be today, so that's just 
off the top of my head. You may do that, but of course it's more than just a calendar entry. At least it should be. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we can make a superstition. I like it too because I think you have to answer that question is, did they, when they were going back to the law, were they actually going back to the law? Or they were going back to a misguided view of the law? And I really think it is a misguided view, right? Okay, yeah, and I t that's how I took it. But just for record's sake, for everybody who listens to it online, for the record, Raymond's not saying the law is superstitious. It's a corrupt view of the law, or particularly the gospel, could which we wind up superstition. Yeah, I totally agree. So if you're wrong, well, I'm wrong with you on, on record, so. Right. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> All right, what else? Yeah, and I think part of it, the reason I would say, depending on what you mean by superstitious, you want to get technical, but I think the, what you're saying is it's like a corruption of the law. So if you thought that I have to do these things because if I do enough of the law, I'll be good enough, and you're actually missing the gospel story, right? Which is what they're doing, because they're not just, and Paul even says they're not even really keeping all the law. It's kind of like people today who claim that they still do the law. Okay, so you can ask them, but you're clearly thinking about this wrong. Do you keep the law? They're going to say yes. I'm like, okay, well, uh, here's the thing. What do you do about all the stuff that's supposed to happen in the temple? Well, yeah, we don't really do that. Okay, but you just said you keep the law, but you don't do any stuff in the temple. What about all the sacrifices? What about Yom Kippur? What about the feast day? Do, do you do other stuff? Well, we can't really do it. So, okay, so <laughs> there should be a sign. You, you don't keep the law. You, something has happened. You don't understand the law. That's why people say, do you understand the law? He's talking to the Galatians. You don't. If you, what you're doing, you're not going back to the law. You're going back to really a, a misguided conception of it. The law was never supposed to do the things you want it to do. It was supposed to be a pointer to Christ who would do the things, do these other things. And that's the part they don't want. Did I see another hand raise? <laughs> So let's talk about sons versus slaves. So in what ways would a relationship with a son be different than a slave or a hireling employee, that sort of thing? We've talked a little bit about this, but there's probably some other areas that we can talk about. As an adopted son, we are equal heirs. Okay, there's a big one, equal heirs, but there's an inheritance coming, right? And then there's a, a status, right? Equal heirs, a quality to it. Yes, sir. I mentioned briefly before, but it's the idea of the eventual result of raising a son as freedom, whereas a slave is constantly under no freedom. Okay, so freedom is an important aspect to it, right? You, you raise a child to go be able to do these things on their own with the freedom, whereas 
an employee or a slave is just there. It's functional, right? The relationship ends at the end of the contract. You just need them to do a job and move on. Yes, sir. Yeah, growth in the relationship, right? Which goes to the whole point of it's like you don't you don't grow in a relationship to just a contractor, right? It's you're not even very much of a relationship there. There's no development to it. It's kind of like the the talk you gave about having a relationship with a, a teacher who goes and, and patiently stays with you and keeps working with you. They're, they're there for the long haul. What else? Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So there's a difference between a shepherd and a sheepdog, right? A shepherd goes out in front and it's like, I'm going to show you how this is done. Follow me. That's exactly what Jesus does. He comes down and he's like, I'm going to show you what it, what it means to be like God in the flesh on this planet. And you follow me. He gives his blood before we give ours. And the thing is, is that the opposite is, and you can see this in leadership. It's, it's not actually leadership. It's something else. The bad leadership, which is more like the sheepdog approach, which is you sit behind people and you bite them at the back of the heels to get them to go where you want to go. Okay, God is the shepherd. He's not like a sheepdog. Yes, sir. Well, this, the gospel is a promise. Promise the law. The son has promised everything when the father dies. The slave is a promise to a prom- and I, Paul makes this a big deal about the promise. He keeps going back to the promise, which goes back to the idea of an inheritance, right? It's about a promise. Like you were just, why were you given something? Because he promised. You didn't earn it. You don't earn an inheritance. I can work really, really hard, and I will not get, I will never earn your inheritance, because you get it because of a relationship. So it's not earned, but it's there because of the relationship. Yeah, good point. Oh, I totally agree. I think that when you think of it, using this relationship way of describing it, it does seem to fall into in place. There was something, John, you had mentioned early on how there's a tendency we want to put things in a box. And it makes sense. When you, when you have rules, you can put them in a nice little box. And as soon as you destroy the rules, your mind is kind of swimming. Well, what do I do now? How do I live this life? And you can understand why maybe some people would want to go back. I understand why people want to go back to to rules, it's kind of comfortable. Robin mentioned that. It is comfortable. I can put them in a checklist. Unless your checklist starts to include things like be like Christ. And then you're like, how do I ever check that box off? It starts to get very uncomfortable. But so what do you do? And your mind is kind of swimming when you're outside of just, just list of static rules. How do I live my life? And as soon as you start realizing, wait, it's but like a relationship, then it makes more sense. Then it starts to make sense. Things like why the Bible is written the way it's written. Okay, I'm an engineer. I used to be a biotech engineer. 
I know how protocols are written. And I've heard people talk about, like, the Bible is my guidebook. I don't have a problem with that. I know what they probably mean. Probably mean. But some people talk about it as if the Bible is a protocol. You go into it with a very specific question, you're going to get this very specific answer out of it. It doesn't always work like that, right? Unless you're talking about the big things. Do not murder. Okay, that's a, yeah, that, that's pretty straightforward. Okay, do not commit adultery. Straightforward. But when you get below that, some of these things, it's actually kind of hard to figure out how to apply these principles. And so you're like, what do you do? Well, but if you think about like a relationship, then you realize that's why the Bible's written like it is. It's not written as a protocol. Shockingly few of the verses in the Bible are direct, specific commands. But then it makes sense why he's showing you a narrative. This is how God lived out, what God and his son lived out life. And when you understand that and you understand the principles that undergird that, you're going to be able to answer a lot of questions that aren't specifically mentioned. Right? That makes so much more sense. Why is there poetry in the Bible? I heard an atheist, and he was writing about how he said, the Bible's poorly written. I was like, oh, really? Okay. He said it should be written, and he wanted it written like law. Like you had mentioned like law, John. He wanted it written like that. He wanted a whole chapter on like sexual ethics, and then another one on, you know, I, I don't know, what, all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, no, that's how exactly every other religion, like Islam, right? That's how other religions are made, and they're terrible. This is the one thing that's different about it. Because it does make a lot more sense if you realize God actually wants to have a relationship with you and you to have a relationship with him. All right, that was the second bell. All right, thanks, y'all.